أعوذ بالله من الشيطان العين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. In our series, Life, the Islamic Answer, we have been discussing the theme of knowledge and intellect in Islam. Alaykum assalam wa rahmatullah. And we saw that in Islamic teachings, the alternative to knowledge and intellect, namely foolishness and ignorance or jahl, is not an acceptable alternative, is not an acceptable option in our religion. And so, because it is equated with disbelief and ungratefulness to this blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us, which is the intellect, the question then becomes, how do we act? What steps do we take concretely? And the short answer is that we must therefore become learners ourselves and acquire knowledge. And we saw that on this path of becoming someone who acquires and who carries knowledge, there are two conditions that must always be met for this knowledge and for this journey of knowledge acquisition and knowledge application to be Islamic. And those conditions are that all this effort in its entirety is an effort with true, sincere intentions and that the intent is also to apply it to the best of our abilities. The knowledge does not remain at the theoretical level. Knowledge is not equal to an accumulation of data and information and memorization of megabytes and gigabytes of, of knowledge and the sense of information. It must actually transform us. And this transformation happens internally and spiritually, and it also happens at the level of conduct and behavior. We spent perhaps around 15 lectures talking about what it means to be a learner in our religion and some of the specific teachings around the learner, some of them very general, some of them quite specific, including, for instance, management of time and what we call the ingredients of good learning or the good learner in our religion. And then we moved to the teacher or the person who now carries the knowledge, the scholar. And we said we're looking at the teacher not only because of the importance of choosing the right source for our knowledge, which is of the utmost importance as we saw, but because naturally the person who starts to acquire knowledge, who now carries a certain amount of knowledge, is now going to play, formally or informally, directly or indirectly, they're going to play the role of a teacher, the role of someone who is now the source of information for others. And that is, in fact, one of the duties of carrying the knowledge, is that you must now spread it. And secondly, we said that 
we're not only looking at the teacher or the scholar as this person we aspire to be perhaps at some point in the future or the person that we look up to as the source of information, but also as the person that we must now start to become. And this is going to give us a set of responsibilities and duties and characteristics that we must try to find in ourselves now that we are in this journey to knowledge. It's not something that you either have or you don't. When we look at the duties or we look at the characteristics and the traits of a scholar or a teacher, for instance, in Islam, it's not something that you either have or you don't. It's a continuum or a spectrum. And so you must start on this journey the moment you start to acquire knowledge and you become aware and you become conscious of these duties and responsibilities and characteristics, you might start to try to find them in yourself and try to transform yourself and have the discipline to move in that direction yourself. It's not like you're going to wake up one day in 15 years after having acquired knowledge and suddenly, magically, automatically, out of necessity, you will find yourself having or meeting all of these characteristics. These characteristics are intentional and deliberate attempts from ourselves as we seek knowledge and we start to become more and more aware of what it entails, the accountability, the duty, the responsibility that goes with it, that we have to start moving in that direction. Specifically, we started to look at what we can consider to be the more foundational or the more core characteristics of the scholar or the teacher. And these, of course, have to be to do with the spiritual dimension and the theological or belief dimension of the teacher. In that this is someone who has to have a high level of piety or religiousness or God-fearing. Someone who gives a lot of importance to the afterlife. In fact, someone who prioritizes the afterlife. Someone who acts in a way that matches what they preach. And we spoke, I think, at length also about the importance of making sure that this person is not obsessed or compulsively obsessed with this world and worldliness and mater the material dimension of this world. And we said that in addition to all of these, and inshallah we spent sufficient time on these, there are also personality traits or moral traits that our religion has pointed out specifically and explicitly with regards to the person who carries knowledge, to the scholar and the teacher. And this is, inshallah, to us going to provide clarity that knowledge is not only information that we carry, it is transformational, yes, deep within, but it's going to show in the manner in which we carry ourselves in this world in basically every dimension. In every area of life, you are going to find the traces, the effects of the knowledge that is carried on the person who is carrying that knowledge, if it is true knowledge. And so we said beyond the knowledge itself, there are a number of spiritual, theological traits, and inshallah those have become clear. We talked about nobility of character, we talked about arrogance and the tyranny of knowledge that 
unfortunately, the human being by nature, the moment they feel that they are self-sufficient, the moment they feel that they have a certain amount of power, whether that power is in the form of social status or the form of money and wealth or the form of knowledge, then the person naturally has a tendency, the human being has a natural tendency to become arrogant, to feel superior, and to start being abusive. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to when the human being acts in this way as zulm. And the first type of zulm is the zulm of the self. This is a transgression, uh, an act of abuse against the self when you act in this way. You are the first to become harmed with this type of behavior. And in other verses, the Holy Quran talks about tughyan. The human being does tughyan, which is to transgress, to go beyond the border, beyond the limits of where he should stop. He goes beyond. When when does he do that? When he sees himself having ghina, having self-sufficiency, having power. The human being goes in that way. And so we saw that in our religion, there's an emphasis on these moral traits, these moral characteristics in our religion because the human nature tends to go in those pitfalls specifically when it has power. And knowledge is certainly one type of this power. And then we, as we said, we talked about what we call the personality traits or the moral traits, including, for instance, foolishness, neglect and heedlessness, talking too much, not knowing what to say, when to say it, who to say it to, and in what way. And inshallah, we're going to try to finish that today. We spoke about jealousy and envy very quickly, and inshallah, we'll refer to it today again. And of course, as we said, Arrogance was also a recurrent theme. We spoke about silence, I think, as something that should go hand in hand with any discussion about someone who starts to play a little bit more formally, especially the role of the teacher or the scholar, because your main job is going to be to communicate. And so this becomes a, an easier pitfall to fall into. And so there has to be a special attention as we start moving in this journey of acquiring knowledge. Of course, the tendency is going to be that we want to share the knowledge that we have. And so we started to talk about the importance in general. We spoke about the importance of silence. And we saw that this is a very important teaching in our religion that has ramifications in all sorts of dimensions, all sorts of areas from self-discipline in general to the spiritual effects that it has to it being something that forces a certain amount of wisdom and good judgment on our part because we have to be careful. When I'm about to say something, I have to be careful. Is this something I should be saying? Should I be saying this at this time? Should I be saying this to this person, to this audience? Should I be saying it in this manner? Right? And all of these become factors that we have to take into consideration before we start to share the knowledge. So inshallah, this part, this dimension, this whole topic is clear when we talked about the importance of silence and, and why we're linking this whole topic to what we were talking about. 
and we said that there's a caveat. This is not to say that silence is always supposed to be the default option. We said that the silence has to be a deliberate choice, a strategic decision at times. You're choosing to be silent because it's the right thing to do, not because of incompetence, not because of lack of knowledge, not because of a lack of ability to speak, but because this is the right thing to do. And this was a, an important point. We saw in a number of a hadith how for knowledge to bear fruit, as the hadith were saying, to give us the, the benefits and the product that we're looking for, it has to be accompanied by this notion in the teachings and the narrations called hilm. Hilm meaning wisdom or good judgment or compassionate patience. And so one form of this hilm is at oftentimes going to be silence. Or if it's not complete silence, then at least to consider silence as an option. Maybe before we continue to wrap up this topic today, a quick link to this idea of once we have truth, once we carry a certain amount of knowledge or truth, we feel that we absolutely have to share it. This is a harmful idea, and it can be a dangerous idea, and it's usually a foolish idea. It's a very superficial understanding of religion if it is derived from an understanding of religion. Oftentimes it's not even. It's a simple human tendency that when you have something that you think is worthy of being shared, then you want to share it. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself. But as we said, we have to be careful in how it is shared. Because at times, this is simply not the right information or the right audience or the right manner in which it's going to be shared. And sometimes it's a matter of timing. Sometimes it's a matter of, do I know how to share this information in the most appropriate way? There is this hadith that, among many, many examples, at one time, I'll, I'll spare the details of the hadith for now, otherwise it'll take us in a completely different direction. But there's one of the companions of Imam al-Sadiq who comes to visit the Imam and he has some questions for Imam al-Sadiq. And he, the companion, the narrator, says that I entered when there were people gathered around the Imam and I asked him so-and-so. He asked him a question. And the Imam gave an answer. And then after the people left and this companion remained behind, the Imam visibly, clearly frustrated, I won't say necessarily angry, but he wasn't happy with this situation. And so you would think the Imam would be the Imam is someone who carries the knowledge, who carries the truth, who always wants to guide people. And here is one of his companions, we can assume to a certain level, a scholar, who is coming to the Imam to learn. I mean, what could be wrong with any of this? Why wouldn't 
all of this scenario make the imam happy? No, the imam was not happy. He told him, why did you ask me about such matters at this time? And so there's a whole you know, ending to, to the hadith. But just from this in itself, this is a very big lesson. This man did not act on his knowledge. This man did not preach. This man did not lecture. He's not even sharing the knowledge. This man simply came to the imam and asked about something. And the imam is basically telling him, it's not wrong to ask. He's telling him, why did you ask me about this matter in this setting at this time? Which tells us the imam was not happy that he's asking about this topic in front of those people. And it could mean that the imam, one interpretation could be that the imam is telling him this is perhaps a personal matter. Not personal in the sense that this is intimate between you and I. But perhaps your level of knowledge, your level of faith and belief allows you to understand this topic and to ask it in this way and I can answer you, but not in public. This audience, these other people sitting here, should not be exposed to this knowledge. Not in this way. So the imam could be telling him, wait until we're alone. Or be more careful next time that when you ask something like this, you might be putting your life in danger or putting my life in danger, which is exactly, most likely, what the imam meant in this case. The rawi, in fact, when he, he narrates this hadith, he says who and who were among those who were sitting. So this is already a clue for us that perhaps some of those who were sitting were not necessarily loyal, good followers of the imam. Maybe they're working as spies for the Abbasids at that time. And so the imam does not want these questions to be asked in this way when the questions have to do, for instance, with the higher spiritual ranks of Ahlul Bayt, for instance, which is only going to give more and more pretext for their enemies to use that against them. Right? This is their leader. This is what they believe in. These beliefs are false. And this is the truth. Except that because of the setting, because of the audience, because... The imam can't, if it's a question, the imam is not going to give a six-hour long lecture to explain all beliefs from belief in God and religion all the way to establishing the ranks of imam. And in fact, this is exactly what the imam says, the ending of the hadith. He tells him that our love, people's love towards us has been hidden now. And their hatred towards us is being spread. So the imam is justifying. He's saying this is going to be used. The manner in which you ask the question means that this question is now going to be used and whatever answer I give, you're putting me in a situation where either I don't really give you the real answer, I can't give you a complete answer, I may have to use full dissimulation and give you a false answer because there's much more harm in answering the question appropriately. All of this because... And we spent a lot of time on this topic. Learning how to ask, when to ask, and from whom, and in what setting, you'll remember. When we were talking about the learner and the importance of asking, and the wisdom around it.
But this is to say the imam is reacting this way and this person did not even act based on their knowledge yet. This is someone who's asking about the knowledge and the imam wasn't happy with how the question was formulated because of the setting. So this is to come back to this point that it's not just because you carry knowledge that you now have to go and share that knowledge with everyone. There has to be wisdom in what do you share? What is appropriate to share? One. Two, with whom? And three, in what way? What's the best way to present this information? There's a whole logic behind it. There are, logically, we would say there are premises. You have to establish certain things first before a piece, a new piece of information to a human being is going to be acceptable. You always have to use things that the person already agrees with you on as an introduction to what you're about to say next. If it's a new, if it's a novel piece of information. So sometimes the context does not allow for this. And unfortunately what we see, and this is why I took the time to make this point, it should go without saying and based on everything that we've said, this should be clear. But I'm making it a point because unfortunately this is oftentimes something that we find in our communities from people who are very well-meaning with good intentions. I now have what I consider to be a certain amount of truth, a certain amount of knowledge about something. So therefore I feel like I should be going and sharing that with others. And the worst part of that is at times I become very critical of those who are not sharing the same ideas or the same truths or what I consider to be the same truths with others. I consider perhaps their faith lacking. They're not at the right level of belief as though belief is just one layer and one level. There's a an infinite continuum of levels of faith, of levels of belief. And we're all somewhere on that journey, on that path. And to move from one layer, one station, one rank of belief to another one usually requires that we accept new pieces of information, new knowledge. And there's a way to present that knowledge. Sometimes we take it for granted because we've heard it enough because it's, it's been presented to us enough that it goes without saying we already know all of the premises. We agree already on all the premises. So when we hear a new conclusion, we accept it. But that's not the case with everyone. If we were to hear something that is a conclusion and the premises, the introductions, there was one of them, for instance, that was not convincing to us, we wouldn't accept that conclusion. And this happens a lot in religion. So if I'm about to present something, either I present it well with all of the convincing arguments. And this means that I understand who my audience is. I understand the nature of the arguments that I have to present. In some settings, I can rely on the Quran said, Imam al-Sadiq said. I can't do that always. If I know that in my audience there are people who don't recognize this in my audience, there are people who are having doubts about the Qur'an itself. I can't use the Qur'an as an argument. It's an argument to me. 
but it may not be a convincing argument to them. So maybe I need an additional argument. Maybe I, I need a rational proof. I need something that the person experienced. Something that presents the verse of the Qur'an in a convincing way to them. That establishes it as an authority to them. That they will accept. Then I can move on to the next part. This is a, just a simple example. And I mention this, as I said, because we see that a lot. So, if ever we are in a situation where we're presenting knowledge, where we have the opportunity to share knowledge with others, we're not saying don't share. We're saying choose carefully. What do you share? Who do you share it with? And what is required for this person to accept what you're presenting? What's the best way for them to present what you're about to present? Certain types of information are better presented in a certain way. That could be the reason why you choose a certain way to present it. Certain types of people like to be exposed to information in a certain way. That's perhaps what you want to do. There are certain topics that require an in-depth analysis. Maybe this is not the best thing to present in a five-minute discussion over coffee. Maybe this is something that you want to share a book with about. And say, you read this book and then we discuss chapter by chapter. Very different. You want to force the person to take it slow, to look at the details, because this is a, a nuanced matter. These are just quick examples. But as we acquire more knowledge and we're on this journey, this is something that becomes more and more important. You are becoming a source of information for others. You are becoming the source of truth to the amount that you're sharing it. You are that source of truth. You don't want this to, this, this thing that should become a huge benefit to you and to others, a huge opportunity. You don't want to turn that into something foolish, something harmful, something dangerous, depending on what you're sharing. You want this to be something where you can fully optimize this benefit. So do it carefully. Do it in a deliberate way. Think about it. Strategize. Plan. What's the best way for me to present this information to this audience, to this person? At what time? In what way? And we said, I think we ended with this, and I believe that we, I think we discussed it enough, but we said after the, we went through a number of hadith talking about this topic, we saw this biblical reference. And I mention it because it's so well known from Isa salam, the Sermon on the Mount. We said in Matthew, where it is said, do not give what is holy to dogs. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces or attack you or destroy you. So this is attributed, this is a very well-known passage from the Bible in Matthew. This is attributed to Isa salam. And we already saw a number of narrations that fall in the same line of thought, same line of thinking. And this is providing one reason why. There are many others. We just talked about a number of others. These are some others. That the knowledge, that the wisdom that you are sharing is not to be shared with everyone in, 
every which way. Be careful, be selective, be wise in how you share it. Who do you share it with? In which, in which way? Sometimes it turns against you. Sometimes it's very clear, very direct way. What you are using is being used, saying is used against you. That's fine. And sometimes it's very indirect. You're harming yourself. You talk with people that are absolutely not interested. They have shown clearly that they're not interested in learning. They have no open openness at all. There's stubbornness. There could be other factors. In those cases, you are putting energy and time and effort there that eventually, and most likely, given the normal human nature, at some point will you not only get exhausted and tired of this, you may actually become bitter. And you may decide not to share information and knowledge and truth with others afterwards because of a bad experience. But in truth, the bad experience was caused by yourself. You chose poorly. You could have put in the same amount of time and energy and effort elsewhere, and perhaps you would have reaped much greater benefits. Perhaps, in some cases, it causes harm to you in this way. Sometimes it causes harm to the knowledge itself. The knowledge is degraded. You take a group of people who are not at a certain level of knowledge, and you start teaching them things that are too advanced. Again, your mistake, lack of judgment. You should have taught it in a way that is appropriate to their level, and eventually you can teach the more advanced stuff. You start with what is more advanced, the knowledge is lost. You are the one who is making the false judgment, incorrect judgment here. This is a degradation of the knowledge. The knowledge is being wasted. The effort, the time, the energy that goes into this is wasted. In any case, I think the other points we talked about, so I won't repeat them, but there were a number of hadith. I'm not sure if we covered them or not, so I'll go over them very quickly in the same vein, in the same way of thinking about this whole topic. And we here see a specific example, a specific application to this idea of being selective in what you say and who do you say it to. And the application is specifically to dealing with fools, as the imams say. In one hadith, Imam Ali السلام, he says, Tarku jawab safih ablahu jawabih. To avoid answering the fool is the most eloquent answer. To not answer the fool, if the person asking is a fool, the most eloquent answer you can give is not to answer. That's one hadith. Another hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. إِذَا حَلِمْتَ عَنِ الْجَاهِلِ فَقَدْ أَوْسَعْتَهُ جَوَابًا If you show this hilm, and there's different ways to understand hilm, if you show this compassionate patience that we talked about, if you show wisdom to who? Towards the one who is ignorant, towards the fool. What does the Imam mean here? The Imam is basically saying if you 
out of compassion and mercy, or out of wisdom, depending on how you understand hilm, you decide not to answer the fool, you have given him the most ample answer. فَقَدْ أَوْسَعْتَهُ جَوَابًا You have indeed given him an ample answer, a sufficient answer. By doing what? By not answering, by ignoring the question. Not because you can't, not because you don't know, but because here you feel like this is the most appropriate thing to do. From Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam. He says, قابل السفيه And so here the Imam is going to give us yet another benefit. In some of these other ahadith, the Imam did not say why. And we went through a number of these ahadith. And there are many others. These are just samples. Where you're just told, just don't answer. If the person asking is a fool or unworthy, simply ignoring is better. Remaining silent is better. And we have a hadith that give a little bit of a motivation or an explanation or justification for why. Just like we saw in the biblical reference, right? We got a little bit of a justification why that is the case. Here Imam Sadiq is also going to give us a bit of a justification. He says, قابل السفيه بالإعراض عنه وترك الجواب يكون الناس أنصارك لأنه من جاوب السفيه فكأنه قد وضع الحطب على النار. So he says, deal with the fool by ignoring him and avoiding to answer him. The imam is explicitly talking about being in a situation where you can answer. And he's saying the way to deal with this person is to avoid the answer, avoid answering, remaining silent. And then the imam gives two reasons. He says, then the people will be your allies. And this is very important. If you're truly a seeker of truth, if you're truly someone who is trying to guide, someone who's trying to help, then you're trying to influence. You're trying to reach the greatest number. And here the Imam says, by doing this, by acting in this way, there's a social dimension. The people will be your allies. They see that you're not sinking so low that you deal with every ignorant fool. So the Imam says, then the people will be your allies. For the one who answers the fool, and this is the second reason, he combines both together. For the one who answers the fool is like the one who places the firewood on the fire. There's already a fire. You're hoping that the fire goes away. It extinguishes. It dies. And the way you're doing that is by bringing more firewood and putting on it. This foolishness needs to die. It's not appropriate to continue to engage with it. If you answer, you're engaging with it. You're keeping it alive. So the Imam here says, let it die. Don't engage. Okay, let's continue with the moral traits. I think with this we can wrap up the, the whole discussion around silence, around what do we say when and to whom and in what way. In the moral traits, we already mentioned a few of them. There's a couple that are explicitly mentioned, as we said, because of human nature. 
One of these, in addition to arrogance, arrogance always comes back around a couple of types of power, as we said. For instance, people who are rulers, for instance, people who have social status, and for instance, people who have, for instance, people who have wealth, and people who have knowledge. And so the Imam talks about jealousy, envy, as being that other trait that always accompanies knowledge. In this hadith, Imam Ali alayhi salam says, and there are multiple hadith from other imams, especially from Imam al-Baqir, very similar, perhaps one word different. He says, لا يكون العالم عالما حتى لا يحسد من فوقه ولا يحتقر من دونه ولا يأخذ على علمه شيئا من حطام الدنيا. So the one does not become a scholar, the Imam says, one does not become a scholar until he abstains from envy, jealousy, envy, over those above him, those better than him, depending on how we understand فوقه. And we have many ahadith, by the way, related to this. I'll come back to it. This is arrogance. And he abstains from being condescending towards those below him. You see, this is human nature. You have a certain amount of power, something that is desirable. You want more of it. Who has more than me? Now I feel jealousy and envy towards them. Who has less than me? I might become transgressive, abusive. I want to dominate. I will condescend. The Imam says, you do not become a scholar if you carry these characteristics, regardless of how much knowledge you're carrying. These are molar traits that are going to cancel out your title of being a scholar. And that he does not take in exchange for his knowledge anything from the debris of this world, of the waste. And we can talk a little bit about this. So the first one has to do with envy, jealousy. And there's a couple of things around this topic. The first one is that the remedy to this is simply to continuously revisit, examine, purify our intent. Why is it that I'm learning? Is it because I'm trying to hit a certain quota, a certain threshold of bits or bytes or megabytes of information? No, it shouldn't be. That's the means. But that's not the end. The end is that there's something spiritual. There's something theological. This brings me closer to God. I'm on my own journey. It's not about who has more than me, unless it is in the sense of ghibta. And we could you know, go on a tangent here and spend another 15 lectures on this topic of hasad. So the idea that when you do have something, and it is something desirable, it's good to want it, 
And it's good to recognize that others have it and that you also want to have something that is desirable. The issue and where it becomes this envy or the negative sense of the jealousy is when you want what they have in it by itself in the sense that you no longer want them to have it. You want to be the only one who has that. You want them to have less of it or none of it so that you're the only one who has it. It's not that they have something good and I should also aspire to have something good while praying and wishing and hoping for them not to lose any of what they have. In fact, I should be asking God to multiply and amplify what they already have. If you find yourself unable to do that with anything, including knowledge, it's very difficult for you, it's troublesome for you that others have more knowledge. Then you're starting to fall in that dangerous pitfall of envy and jealousy. And we have a number of ahadith. As I said, I'm trying not to go on that tangent of hasad and ayn and so on and so forth. That will open a whole theme and we'll need a few lectures on that. But this is certainly something that is recognized as being true. This is a real phenomenon. It affects us. The Holy Quran talks about this, right? وَمِن شَرِّ حَاسِدٍ إِذَا حَسَدٍ You ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you seek refuge in God from a number, a number of different types of evil in the world. One of them being the envy of the one who envies while he envies. That specific moment when he is feeling the envy and feeling the jealousy. وَمِن شَرِّ حَاسِدٍ it's not just from the envious one. In that specific moment when they are experiencing the envy and the jealousy. You're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect you against that. In other words, the Holy Quran is saying this is a very specific type of evil. It requires the protection of God. This is real. It's a type of negative energy that you have towards other things. And the Holy Quran seems to be saying that it definitely affects other people. That negative energy I feel towards another human being will affect them. So that part is there, but if you go back, this is as a topic, as a theme, I think we all know that there, there is a an effect just by the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or our religion says that this is something forbidden, this is a sin. So we know that there is an effect to jealousy and envy in the afterlife. That should be established. So there is already an effect or a harm awaiting us in the afterlife. In addition to this, it's affecting our spirituality. And there are multiple ahadith around this. That it burns away at your faith, at your belief. This belief that is so hard to build so hard to take care of and to make grow. And yet here you are bringing something that just burns it, that eats it away. And this is exactly how it is mentioned in a number of hadith, that it eats away like fire eats wood. It eats away at your faith, at belief. 
to feel envy and jealousy towards others. It talks about, in a number of other ahadith, when it talks about hasad and envy, it says that it, it is at the root of every problem in this world. When you encounter problems, things are just not working out the way they're supposed to in this world. Just problems and difficulties and hardships and challenges and the root of a lot of that in our ahadith, somewhere in there, someone in there, or perhaps more than one person, they are experiencing, they are feeling envy and jealousy. We have ahadith that talk about physical health. Ahadith that say that the person who feels envy, who feels jealousy, is someone who will be carrying an illness physically in their body because of it. So we could say, you know, this is one way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is punishing this person spiritually. But those ahadith don't seem to be saying that. They seem to be saying there is this feeling that you carry, envy and jealousy, that has a physical impact on your body. It will lead to an illness. And we have a hadith, and everybody talks about this, huge popular theme today, that the person who carries envy, who feels envy and jealousy, is someone who can never know happiness. Mental health, mental well-being. If you carry envy and jealousy, no matter what you do, there's something restless that does not allow you to feel happiness in this world. You have to purify yourself to clean, cleanse yourself from envy and jealousy so that you can feel happiness again. So there's a psychological aspect, there's a physical aspect to this. In addition to what we can consider to be a social one, a spiritual one, a theological one, our religion has emphasized a lot of energy is spent on this. So we keep all of this in mind, and we know this is one example here. لا يكون العالم عالما حتى لا من فوقه. This is one example. I don't think I I stayed away from many other ahadith that we have that talk about hasad specifically. I thought this would be enough to talk about the topic, specifically about scholars. One of the worst types of hasad in this world, we have ruwayat that say there are two people who have a special type of hasad. They experience hasad more than anyone else. It's much easier for them to fall into hasad. There are two factors that make people more envious in this world. And we've seen both. We've talked about both. One of them is wealth and money. And the other is knowledge. That a lot of the hasad of this world, we have a hadith that say a lot of the hasad of this world is concentrated in the scholars. The hasad that they feel towards each other. So when we know this, there's already a warning. Even before you go into somewhere, you already have a warning that says, be careful, this is an area where a lot of people slip up. Warning, there's danger here. Stay clear. It means that you have to be extra careful. It requires an extra effort. 
And as we said, this is not random. This is because of our human nature. Knowledge is a source of power. Not everybody feels it, but once you start feeling it, it's very clear. Knowledge is a source of power, a source of influence, a source of prestige and status. And it's very easy that the moment you experience that, to want to experience a lot more of it. That's human nature. So if you can't control, you can't keep your feelings in check, then you're going to fall into these pitfalls. And our religion has already told us where they are, which ones they are. The second part, I think when it comes to the, the, the second statement of this hadith, I won't spend more time on it. I think we spend a lot of time on it already. When it says, and he abstains, the scholar does not become, one does not become a scholar until he abstains from envy and until he does not act in a condescending way to those who are below him. So this could be below him in every way, including in knowledge. And then that's the last part that I think perhaps we can say a couple of words. And again, this would require a whole lengthy discussion. The Imam says, So that he does not take in return or in exchange for his knowledge any of the waste of this world. In other words, money. That you do not take in exchange for your knowledge any reward, any monetary reward. The main reason for mentioning this, there's an individual dimension and then there's a social dimension. The social dimension, and in today's world it is as true as it was in the past, it's difficult to be able to rely on a very trustworthy source of information. If your knowledge is for sale, then it's going to go to the highest bidder and you might distort that knowledge, present it differently, present it in an incomplete way to suit the benefits, the interests of that highest bidder, whoever happens to be paying. You are now a worker for hire. And so if it is known that your knowledge is for sale, and you understand, or others understand, such as rulers, authorities, anyone who has a position where they need to influence people, if they know that your knowledge is for sale, all they need to do is buy it. And so you're no longer a trustworthy source of knowledge. And if that becomes the case, in some cases people don't know how all of that is happening behind the scenes, people don't know. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows and you know. People don't know. So you're causing a harm. It is a social harm. You're impacting society. You're impacting those who are being influenced by you. That's a type of harm, social harm. There's another type of social harm related to this when people know. And it's that people start to realize that you are someone whose knowledge is for sale. 
and you not only put in question all of your knowledge, even those areas of your knowledge which are entirely true and people should be benefiting from them, now all of it is looked at from that question mark. Well, maybe this was just for sale. Who knows how this is being influenced? And it might, in fact, put in question everyone else's knowledge. You're a scholar. Scholars are hired. You can't really trust anything they say. They're influenced by the highest bidder. So here the harm is not only at your level, you're also harming everyone else by making them skeptical towards the knowledge that is produced by others, shared by others too. So our religion is trying to already put some constraints, some fences around this and say knowledge is not supposed to be for sale. So this is the first point. The second point, and I think this is perhaps a topic that requires an extensive discussion with no real right and wrong answers to this. Can you actually get paid for sharing knowledge that is religious? You want to share knowledge regarding beliefs. You want to share knowledge regarding the Holy Quran. Rituals, spirituality, history. Can you actually get paid? Receive a reward in exchange for this or not? The short answer is yes, you can. The key, one key, there's a few keys. The first key is that what is your intent from acquiring knowledge and sharing it? Are you sharing the knowledge to receive the reward? Or is the reward coming as a secondary output, outcome of sharing the knowledge? Are you making it a condition? Or is it something that is coming along with it? And what's the type of information? What's the religious act that you're performing? Is it an indispensable act? Or is it something that our scholars consider to be a secondary act? If you don't teach this piece of knowledge, will the person not be allowed to pray? Will not be able to pray to perform their wudu, for instance? In that case, you're not allowed to hold back because this is a necessity, a basic part of the religion that you are abstaining from teaching and there is no one else who will teach this. If there are as many options, then no issue. You don't have to be the one. But if you are the source of knowledge, if you are that source of information, and it is something necessary for the person to be a believer, and you refuse to share that knowledge, and this is considered a sin, and you're not allowed. And we have a number, not a lot, but a number of specific acts that have been also mentioned for which you're not supposed to receive any reward. Are these the only ones or not? There's a whole discussion between the fuqaha. For instance, the person who performs the adhan, the mu'iddhan, this is someone who had that function, that role in every masjid. 
It's very well known who the Mu'addin is. You're not supposed to receive a reward in exchange for the Adhan. Or if you perform the rituals of death, for instance, someone who has just passed away, and all the rituals of death, the burial, the prayer, the ghusl for the person, the takfeen, you're not supposed to receive a reward in exchange for that. What does that mean though? Does it mean that if someone comes and says, you've performed all of this, you spent the whole day with us performing the rituals for our deceased and our family, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect all of you and your families. Here's a certain amount as a gift. Are you allowed to take that or not? Yes, you're allowed to take it. But if someone comes to you and says, someone just passed away, we need you to come, we're not sure how to perform the rituals, we need you to we know you know how to perform the rituals. Can you please perform and you say, on condition that you pay me X dollars. That would be haram. You can't do that. And this is why, when you go back to the principles in our religion and how all of this was done, even in the times of Ahlul Bayt and I think today this applies a lot more and as I said, this is a very big topic and it would require some social discussions. Many, many. In the times of Ahlul Bayt, when you go back to the people who were teaching others, who were playing the role of the religious authority and sharing knowledge and teaching others, of course there are Ahlul Bayt. But there are dozens or hundreds of others performing that role with Ahlul Bayt their students, their teachers the, the, their followers that the Ahlul Bayt themselves the Imams would send all over the land if we say none of those people are receiving any amount to do this work then how do they live so the issue is not that you receive or not is that you can't make this a condition and what is it that you're teaching and how indispensable is it? And to what extent are you the exclusive source? Ahlul Bayt would reward all of these people. Today we would say, you know, they're performing a social duty or a public interest duty. Just like people work in the government. We call them public servants. They perform a public service. So who pays them? The state. The state pays them for performing a public service. We say this person is dedicating themselves to a service to the public. This was the case at the time of the Imams, and we talked about this at length, to become a proper learner in Islam. You need to dedicate yourself. It's a lot of work. So you have to decide, these people who are now supposed to be the sources of knowledge, what's the quality that you expect from them? You want them to be amateurs? Or do you want them to be professionals? How much effort should they put into this? Is it realistic to expect them to achieve this level of expertise and to be professionals in their field, to have this level of knowledge in their field without support, without recognition, without some sort of infrastructure that supports it? This was not the case at the times of the Imams, 14 centuries, 13 centuries, 12 centuries ago. 
Imagine today. If you want to be a dedicated professional in religion, how many areas of expertise do you need? And is it realistic to expect someone, let's say everybody has a really strong background in religion, everybody studies their religion, and then you reach a certain point in life and then you have to go and live your life. Sustain yourself, sustain your family, have a livelihood. This is what the Quran says. From every group, there are a few who should dedicate themselves to go and acquire deep understanding and knowledge. This is the category we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, the commoners. The Holy Quran recognizes that everybody can be that professional, that dedicated expert. Take as an example, all of us, some of us, most of us, those who have gone, let's say, through high school, who have completed high school. Let's say you were top student, very strong. You studied algebra and calculus. And this was 20 years ago. You were a good student. You passed your grades. You passed your exams with flying colors. And then you go on to live your life that has nothing to do with math. You never go back to algebra or calculus again. Do you think that in 10 or 20 years you'll be able to go back and solve the same equations that you were solving you know, two nights before the exam? No. Why? Because it requires practice and expertise. And if you don't stay in it, day in and day out practicing, it goes away. Religious knowledge is exactly the same way. You might spend 10, 15, 20 years studying all sorts of fields in religion. Rajal, fiqh, aqaid, usul, akhlaq, arfan, whatever. If you don't keep that knowledge fresh, if you don't apply it day in, day out, if you don't look at what's happening in the world in this field, what are the new theories, what are the new publications, how do they differ, are there new ideas, new arguments that suddenly have to change some of the things that you thought you knew, they have to be revised. Can you do that on the side while you're running the rest of your life? It's impossible. And that's why we say you have to be realistic here. If you expect these people, because we're talking about the scholar and the teacher, if you expect these people to be experts and professionals, dedicated, and I say this because I, as many others, I'm sure, we often hear a critique of sometimes the level of expertise that we see from a scholar, from a speaker, from a lecturer. We have to ask ourselves the question first, as me as an individual, or me as a member of a community, What's the standard that I expect? That's what, I'm, what I feel I'm entitled to. What's the standard do I, that I expect? Fine. 
Now, what am I doing to support that standard? When I go to university, I have a certain standard in mind that I expect my university prof with a PhD to be teaching at. And I'm doing something to support that. I'm paying $300 to $600 every course, right? For 39.5 hours a semester. What am I doing to support this level of expertise in religion? If I really think and I really expect that level of expertise. At the times of the imams, the imams themselves would pay, in a lot of cases, these people. Because the imam represents the authority and people are giving their money to the imam. And so the imam recognizes, and this comes back to a very fundamental principle in our religion, that you recognize to every person in society what is their worth for someone who performs this type of work. And it's well known. The average for someone who works in construction is XYZ. The average for someone who performs, I don't know, he's a shepherd, this is what they're paid. You go back to religion, this is how it's done. They would go to a judge and the judge would make a ruling that someone doing this type of work, this is what they should be receiving. That's how they dealt with people, including scholars, including their students. And they're not all at the same level, nor do they all have the same conditions or the same responsibilities or the same duties in society and so on and so forth. So in any case, sometimes I just thought it's worth at least mentioning, and I leave it at that, as I said, this is not something we can just resolve or say this is what religion says. Religion here in these cases, it gives us very high level general principles. And we have to find a balanced way to apply all of these principles together. I'm just looking at the uh, next hadith and wondering whether I should stop here or continue. I think I'm going to stop here and uh, inshallah we'll uh, continue next time. Inshallah we'll try to wrap up the moral traits. Prayers in about uh, 20 minutes. So until here, inshallah it's becoming clear that in addition to what we refer to as the theological characteristics, the, the belief characteristics of the scholar and the spiritual characteristics of the scholar, that there are personality traits, there are moral traits, and those traits go way beyond the amount of knowledge you carry, your ability to deliver that knowledge that you're a good lecturer, you're a good communicator. We began this series on the teacher with that. We said this is someone who has almost an expert level of knowledge of how to communicate and how to argue and how people think and how to convince them. You'll remember that. All of that should go without saying. All of that is still the case. But the more we're going in the characteristics now, we're starting to see that beyond the knowledge itself, that there were theological traits to the scholar. That this is someone who has a close relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who prioritizes the afterlife, who is not obsessed with this world and its material dimension. 
that there is a spiritual dimension, and we're going to see a little bit more of that too in a couple of the hadith. And then, beyond all of this, there's also a moral and personality dimension. And this is where we said knowledge is going to go way beyond just the information that you carry. That's why we talked about jealousy and envy, or your ability to exercise good judgment and know what to say when, and who do I say it to, and in what way, or to exercise a lot of hilm, wisdom, compassionate patience, because of the knowledge that I carry, by opposition to arrogance. That's not because I now know more than others that I have to feel superior and be condescending towards them and make it very difficult for my knowledge to reach others and so on and so forth. Okay, so inshallah we'll build on this. There's a few ahadith and then we'll move to the duties of the scholar inshallah. We won't spend too much time on it. I think we've already covered a lot of them. You'll remember when we started talking about the characteristics, I said the characteristics are in fact the duties. The characteristics are not things that happen automatically. Just because I have knowledge, then suddenly I will know how to behave. The characteristics that are being described, that the scholar is someone who doesn't experience envy, that means that this is intentional. That this is a duty of being a scholar. So therefore, I have to make sure that I clean my intent. I clean my heart, purify it from envy, purify it from arrogance, make sure that the intent is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So that's why we said the characteristics that we've been going through are themselves duties and responsibilities. And that's why we're not dedicating two. Usually when you go in the books, you'll see there are two different chapters or two headings. One of them has to do with the duties of the scholar. One of them has to do with the characteristics of the scholar, for instance. Saying, in fact, it's the one and the same thing. The characteristics are duties. You have to work towards these. And you have to make sure that you match them, that you align with them. Otherwise, there's something lacking in your knowledge. And you have to wonder, to what extent is this real knowledge? Is it still meeting the criteria of being Islamic knowledge, or is it just information that I'm carrying? Okay, so let's stop here, and inshallah we continue next time. وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين. If there are any questions, concerns, comments, we have a bit of time. أتفضلوا. In regards to uh, when you mentioned uh, speaking to not speaking to a fool, uh, how would we be able to identify a fool? In some cases they meet certain criteria that are very clear. And in some cases, it's really up to you. Yeah, Ahsantum. That's the, the constant feedback that we get, and I still uh, don't do it. So the question is, we saw a number of hadith that talk about not engaging with the fool, not answering the fool when they ask questions. So how do we know that this person is a fool? I think last week there was this hadith from Imam Ali السلام, we said من وصيته إلى ولده الحسن if it, if it is in fact to Imam Al-Hasan السلام, he says as an example 
He said, وَمِنْ صِفَةِ الْعَالِمْ أَنْ لَا يَعِضَ إِلَّا مَنْ يَقْبَلُ عِضَتَهِ وَلَا يَنْصَحَ مُعْجَبًا بِرَأْيِهِ وَلَا يُخْبِرْ بِمَا يَخَافُ إِذَاعَتَهِ So Imam Ali was saying one of the traits of the scholar, in fact he talks a lot about knowledge in this specific letter, and here he says one of the traits of the scholar is that he will not give advice except to the one who may accept his advice. One. Two. And that he does not give advice to someone who is impressed with his own opinion. To, to translate it literally. And that he does not share that which he fears divulging. If it's something that I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm fearful of the consequences of this being spread, then I shouldn't be sharing it. Don't take that risk, in other words, the Imam's saying. Here the Imam gave us three criteria, so we'll focus on two. The third one is a little bit different. The Imam here, he gave two ways of understanding this person who should not be receiving our knowledge. The first one, he said, someone who will not accept what you tell them. Of course, in this case, you have to have a logical reason for thinking this is not someone who will be guided, let's say, who will be open to what you have to share. And this is well known. If you go in fiqh, if you study Amr bil Ma'roof and Nahi an al-Munkar as a chapter, you'll see that there's a lot of discussion around this. Are you obligated to go to every person that you meet ever in your life and try to perform Amr bil Ma'roof and Nahi an al-Munkar on every single teaching in religion? No. Everything depends on what you assess to be a realistic likelihood that this is going to have the proper effect. So this is the same criteria. If this is someone that has been a proven track record of being stubborn, maybe put your energy elsewhere. That's one. So stubbornness would definitely fall there. The second one is, وَلَا يَنْصَحَ مُعْجَبًا بِرَأْيِهِ Someone who will only use their own conclusions. Not open to hearing anything from anyone else. Does it mean that you absolutely have to stop and not share anything? No. And none of this is, by the way, you know, a fiqhi teaching that we're saying it's haram for you to teach or to share. This is a recommendation. That if you feel, for instance, that someone is too impressed with their own opinion, too arrogant to listen to what you have to say, too stubborn to listen to what you have to say, maybe move on to someone else. And there's a lot of other. But these, I went to that one because we, we spent a bit of time on this hadith last time. So we have some criteria that tell us what is foolishness and when people act foolishly, what does it mean? And those, I think we, you can if you, if you have the choice, we don't always have the choice. Sometimes, yes, the person might seem by your standards to be a fool. They're acting with a lot of foolishness. But he might be a family member. And you care deeply about them. I wouldn't say in those cases you just stop giving answers and trying to guide. For sure. And so this is of course going to apply. Here we're talking in general. As I said, as you move into the public sphere with that knowledge. Make sense? Allah uh, Just to add to your point, um, when you mentioned about uh, 
selling your knowledge to the highest bidder. Um, I, I think like uh, like it sounds like uh, you know like you're like a person sometimes doing it willingly, but I feel like in a lot of cases um, it has a lot to do with the pressure, fear, and force. You know, like a, lo a lot of people who have knowledge throughout history, even in our current time, who uh, have a lot of knowledge or are looked at by the public, have a lot of knowledge and a lot of influence, are usually like pressured by uh, authorities to lean towards their desires and they set an example to them. So for example, they'll have one or two who, who are firm on what they stand by and then they punish them and then the other ones who are weaker they fear so i feel like the more knowledge you have and the more influence you have uh, and i'm not sure if it builds you but i'm i think you have to prepare yourself that your tests are becoming more difficult as well so so in uh, the question is or the comment is i don't think it's, it's a, not question. a question actually i was i was because yeah. when you mentioned that i I refer to uh, this ayah from Surah At-Tawbah, verse 9. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Sorry, verse 8. Ishtaraw bi-ayat illahi thamanan qalila fasaddu an sabilih innahum sa'a ma kanu ya'malun. It's one verse. And another verse, when it talks about the the story of, or like the event of Muharram and the story of Imam Hussein alayhi salam and then it goes uh, so in that sense it's like it's talking about the, the group the specific group that follows the path of the Imam and that group in its sense like it's how do I say it's not it's like implied not stated but they carry some sort of knowledge right that for example the majority would not Accept to, so Allah used the word "yuqatilunakum," which means you know. So as the more knowledge you have, the more the more you have to be prepared for a harder test, you know, that you could face perhaps in the future. So, so the the question about or the comment about making sure that your knowledge is not for sale, um, and when you go through history or even through society, you see that uh, it's not as easy to apply. Uh, and oft, oftentimes those who do have a certain amount of influential knowledge or expertise are going to be called to act in certain ways by those who are in positions of power and influence. Uh, and so therefore the tests multiply and uh, combine and accumulate over them 100%. That is the case. The, these are the, the the laws, the social laws that the Holy Quran talks about. And inshallah, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the series too. That uh, there's definitely, as a human being's level of faith increases, so do their challenges and their tests in this world. It, it, it goes without saying, right? From, from the first level of belief to the last one. And the lives of the prophets and the, you know, the saints are best example of this. And the Quran talks about this, the beginning of Surah Al-Rum. Right? Uh, Surah Al-Ankabut. The people think that just by uttering the words and saying, I have believed that that's it, and they're going to be left alone without being trialed and, and uh, challenged with tribulations. So 
your true faith has to go through tests and to the person who carries knowledge the test is through their knowledge and what they will do with it just like the person who you know has money and the test is going to be through money and the person who has health it's what are they doing with their health and and so on and so forth so ahsamtum for the second uh, verses of course that would not necessarily be considered the tafsir of the ayat if you have specific narrations that mention that this is the interpretation uh, then this would be this is what our scholars would refer to as the application of of the interpretation otherwise the verses itself when you read them uh, they're certainly like when they were revealed they were true so when they were revealed and imam hussein alayhi salam for instance is not even born yet or he is born uh surah tawbah was was revealed later uh but he's still a young child and the verse is not necessarily talking about just that one instance the, the verse is explaining a general rule right and so it can be applied to a number of instances and then you will have a very clear much clearer much truer example of it and this is sometimes what is used in the ruwayat of the imams to to show that this is the best interpretation or the best application of the verse but the verse applies to many other situations so that was just a, a clarification otherwise ahsantum wa sallallahu ala sayyidina muhammadin wa ala alihi tayyibin at-tahirin